one of the pervasive issues of the New Testament that we have seen a lot of recently in our study of James is the dangers of the love of money. One of the reasons that can be so easy to fall into the friendship of the world, the love of money, is because money gives us the ability to do things we otherwise couldn't. I mean, beyond just the basic necessities, having heat in our homes or running water. Money allows us to travel and see the world. It allows us even locally to try different foods that we normally would not try. Give nice gifts to our kids. There's nothing wrong with that. One of the abilities that wealth also allows, especially for the extremely wealthy and thus powerful, is the ability to gain more wealth through the oppression of the poor. And we see this. This is something that we have seen throughout history. In fact, many years ago when I was still serving in Albania, one of the things that our church and seminary did was host a conference that some people from America wanted to host. They wanted to kind of try it out in a very poor and developing country. And the conference theme was basically why rich nations stay rich and poor nations stay poor. And the speakers were actually uh, the theologian Wayne Grudem, as well as a fellow elder at his church at the time, Barry Asmus, who was a very solid, who is a very solid Christian, but also a very well-known economist. In fact, back when he came, he was uh, voted by USA Today um, as uh, the number one public speaker in America. And so they came and spoke, and Wayne Grudem said, I've, I've always uh, studied these things and understand from biblical principles why rich nations stay rich and poor nations stay poor, but I've never had an economist to back me up. And Barry said, I've always understood this from an economic point of view, but I've never had a theologian back me up. And they realized they were already very good friends. And so they came and did this conference. They actually wrote a book out of it. And basically, a lot of the reasons that poor nations stay poor come from biblical principles, including that the rich and poor nations oppress the poor. There are no helps for the poor. There's a lot of corruption, and in nations like that, the wealthier you get, the more corrupt you can be, and so you keep your money, and you make more money on the backs of the poor. And so there's actually a lot of biblical principles regarding the love of man and treating people fairly, giving them their proper wage is why rich nations stay rich. And though this is, people would argue about this today, many of the rich nations in our country were based on a lot of biblical principles. And you even see countries in Europe that rejected the Reformation, they face the consequences of that even today. And so we look, as we continue in our study in the book of James, that James begins a small section condemning the rich for doing exactly that, oppressing the poor. And it's not just out of fun. It's because by oppressing the poor, they can gain more money. They cheat them out of their pay so they can stuff their already full pockets. Thus, the title of our sermon today, Suffering Wealth. Because the poor who are oppressed suffer often at the hands of the wealthy, especially historically we have seen this, probably not so much in America, but around the world this is very true, that the poor suffer wealth because of the wealthy. But all of that, we will see, 
next week. This morning, we see that those who suffer from wealth are not merely the poor and oppressed. The wealthy themselves suffer because of their wealth. Their own wealth is a source of incredible suffering and grief. And what we are about to see, it's not because they have more responsibilities. It's not because they are anxious about their bank accounts. It is because they will be judged by the Almighty God. Turn with me to James chapter 5. As we begin a new chapter and a new section, what we will see in James chapter 5 is rather than spending long chunks half a chapter, a whole chapter on a particular topic, as he closes out this letter, he's hitting various topics, and so we'll see multiple different topics that he'll just address with a few verses, the longest of which is actually regarding wealth and the wealthy and how they hurt the poor. We're going to break this into two weeks, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 this morning. Let me read that for you. He says, "'Come now, you rich.'" Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. From this passage this morning, I want to give you three misfortunes of worldly fortune. Three misfortunes of worldly fortune. The first is inevitable despair. Inevitable despair. I find this in verse 1. Let me read that for you again. He addresses the rich and says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Now again, there's a historical reality of the wealthy taking advantage of the poor. You hear this even today although probably more in the context of political debate more than anything, often evidenced in the outcries of billionaire CEOs in America and their factory working conditions. We've seen this very recently in the news regarding Amazon factories, regarding Tesla factories. True or not, we understand that this is a problem that people see and very much endure. And we are given a glimpse into this reality from James's address of the problem, and granted this is a different place, This is 2,000 years ago. And he starts by getting their attention with the phrase, come now. It's not something really popular in America today. We wouldn't say, come now. Come now, child. No. In our day, it would be, listen up. Hey, pay attention. And we notice that the particular people that he wants to listen up are the rich. Come now, you rich. And after getting their attention... James immediately tells them to weep and howl because of the coming miseries they will face, the inevitable despair. What is this? Weep and howl are two expressions of extreme grief. Specifically, the word weep in the Greek means to cry, to sob loudly, to lament. Howl is exactly what it sounds like, wailing, shrieking, moaning because of some sort of difficulty or sadness. Together, they picture uncontrollable sobbing from grief. It is the kind of sobbing that is intense. It is violent. Many of us have experienced that. You just can't control it. You can't compose yourself. And the more you try to, the more extreme it gets. The intensity of such lamenting and described with the 
Hebrew version of these words is seen often in the Old Testament, specifically when the prophets of the Lord describe how the wicked will react on the day of the Lord. And we know the day of the Lord, especially for the wicked, is serious stuff. It's terrifying stuff. And so these same phrases, these same terms, but of course in the Hebrew because it's the Old Testament, describe the wicked. They warn the wicked of what you will do if you do not repent on the day of the Lord. So this indicates to us that the miseries James will describe are not regarding the present day. Even for James, the present day and the people that he is addressing at that time, something is coming. Something is coming that will cause them to howl and weep such that he says you should start doing that right now. So we know that it's not connected to their present day use of those riches. Weep and howl because that expensive statue you're building in front of your palace is going to crumble. No, nothing like that. The thing they are to weep and howl for is forthcoming and it is connected to coming judgment. Now aside from the general warning to all wicked in the Scriptures, we know that the Bible often condemns the rich specifically. Now we need to be clear. Being wealthy, like physically wealthy, having a lot of money, does not automatically warrant misery because of judgment. There's no financial level which, when surpassed, automatically puts you in the danger zone. Oh, don't, don't take that raise because then you'll be in the judgment zone. No, that's not what he's saying. What we do see in Scripture, and this is very important to understand, that the word rich, the people who are rich, was sometimes used in the Scriptures for the unrighteous. Because in society, and especially that society, the rich were often the greatest perpetrators of wicked living. And on top of that, when taking into account all the sinful misuses of money, you have to ask, who can misuse it the most? Well, the people that have the most. You can cover up evil. You can solicit more evil. You can buy more evil when you have more money. And then, more to his point, when you get to a point where you have power and control, like wealthy landowners... Wealthy business owners would be the modern uh, equivalent. You can oppress the poor. You cannot pay them what they're worth. And we'll see a clear example of that in verses 4 through 6 next week. Why would you do that? Because if you don't give them a shekel, you keep the shekel. And that's what the rich can do. And no one can do anything about it. Especially in places like where James is from, not so much today, you also have a lot of corruption. And so you can use less money to bribe a judge than you save in whatever you're trying to bribe them to not convict you for. Now, although not all-inclusive of all potential problems of money or the love of it, Luke chapter 6, Jesus Christ gives us some insight. Turn to Luke 6 with me. We'll look at verses 24 and 25. Luke chapter 6. Verses 24 through 25. And we know Jesus in the gospel spoke much about money and the dangers of money. 
But he says, Woe to you who are rich. Why? For you are receiving your comfort in full. Verse 25, Luke 6. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Well, we know within the greater context of Scripture, again, he's not just saying because you are rich, you're going to have problems on Judgment Day. You're going to have problems in the future. What we see is that the underlying issue, as with James, is those who find their comfort and fulfillment in the riches of this life rather than in Christ and the reward of the next life. And right there, you see that you don't have to have any money to fall into this sin. To find comfort now, to pursue comfort now, above and beyond or to the exclusion of wanting reward in heaven. Finding comfort in heaven and glorifying God. You understand, this is the love of money that is warned about throughout the Scriptures. And when you love the world in this way, it's really the same with anything you truly love. You can't get enough. Someone says, man, I love pepperoni pizza. Say, how often do you eat it? Nah, once a year. I can buy it. I can afford it. I just eat it once a year. You think, well, I don't think you really love it. Okay? They say, I, th- I think I'm there. I think I'm there, brother. I've fallen in love with her. I'm calling her all the time. I'm texting her all the time. I want to spend all this time with her. You get it. When you truly love something, you can't get enough. How much more is this true of the love of money? Because that's the interesting thing about money, right? No matter how much you have, you can get more. It's never enough. There's always something more. There's always something bigger. And this is why many wealthy people would do what is necessary to keep as much of their money as possible and then proactively try to get more as much as possible. And this would come at the expense of the poor who are easily taken advantage of. And again, we'll see more of this next week. By the way, the connection between the love of the world and the rich is why Jesus said that it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Difficult, not impossible. Again, this is not talking about Christians who are wealthy. This is unbelievers in that context when Jesus said that. This is unbelievers who are so consumed with the world, they have everything they want, at least in their minds. Why would I need a Savior? Why would I submit to this Messiah? Why would I follow this God? Didn't he just tell that rich man to sell everything he has and give to the poor? Why would I want that? Look at my fields. Look at my palaces. Look at everything that I have. Don't tell me that I need something more. But it's not impossible. We know that there are many wealthy, heaven-focused, godly people. There are many multimillionaires that are godly, godly people. There is a multi-billionaire that you would go to lunch at his restaurant, but it's closed on Sundays. There are people that, you would, that own stores like Hobby Lobby that are doing much for the kingdom of God. You know, the son of the founder of Hobby Lobby, one of his hobbies is he flies around and finds old buildings that have, uh, the businesses have gone bankrupt, so old Walmarts or Targets or whatever it is. 
And he buys those buildings at pennies at, on the dollar and then just donates them to churches so that they can have a building. So that's not to say that just by having money, you're going to be an unbeliever or you're going to be wicked. Right? This man does this in his private jet as he flies from place to place to find buildings to donate to churches. I need to get that guy's number. But <laughs> you get my point. Okay? He's talking about the wealthy who are pursuing wickedness, who are just all they care about is money to the point that they are sinning against other people, other brothers. And so, with that context, we know that there were wealthy people among James's audience. He addressed them back in chapter 1 and verse 10 when he warns them of the fleeting nature of life. You remember that. Also, even last week, some of the businessmen that he spoke of when we're talking about planning biblically, making plans according to the Scriptures, some of the businessmen he addressed at the end of chapter 4 would be among the wealthy Jews. And since James is directly addressing these immoral rich, we know that they are among those who would read his letter. Because it is in this letter to the Christian Jews that he's saying this. So, who are these specific rich that he's addressing? They are either believers in the church who are in need of correction or those who are professing believers who need salvation. Regardless, there's much that we can learn, wealthy or not. So back to the text. Why should they weep and howl? Because there are miseries which are coming. Miseries are just that. It refers to difficulty, suffering, trouble, overwhelming hardship. And the depth of the difficulties they will experience is not just clear to us through the word itself, miseries, but also back to, by the fact that just in anticipating them, James is saying you should weep and howl. And the Greek tense of the word coming, the miseries are coming, that James uses, indicates that it is certain perhaps even on their way. So to summarize, the unrighteous rich are those who misuse their wealth in sinful ways. And again, as we will see next week, particularly in the oppression of the poor, cheating the poor, they are thus to experience a great burden and sadness for the judgment that is inevitable because of their money-related sin. And that's the first misfortune of worldly fortune, the inevitable despair. The second is one that we have seen before in James in a different way, but is worth mentioning again in this context. Our second point is the irreversible destruction. The irreversible destruction. Let's look at verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3 as he describes something that we have all experienced. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Now, I mentioned earlier that he addresses the rich back in chapter 1 and verse 10. I'd invite you to turn back a couple pages to look at that. James speaks of the rich man himself as a person passing away in the midst of his pursuits. James chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away. 
For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. We understand this is the reality of life. Rich or poor, you will die someday. I was just telling my kids the other day because many of you know I've been praying thank you for my wife's hurt shoulder. And little kids, they don't really get it. They're like, I've broken things, and then I'm back on the monkey bars the next morning, right? And I said, and some of you guys aren't going to like this. I feel like I'm saying, prefacing that something like this every week now. I said, around 35 years old, right, people are born and they grow and they're developing and they're getting stronger and stronger, and they hit their peak, and at 35, everything just starts decaying. I said, Mama's shoulder is going to take longer than it would for yours because she's on the other side of that hill. <laughs> and, you know, you're laughing because you agree. You know this is true, right? I remember the first time we were in small group. This was years ago, okay? And I can't even remember. I think I had hurt my ankle, and I, I mentioned, I said, man, this, is, this hurt. It's not going away. And our beloved Deacon Dennis just matter-of-factly just goes, it just gets worse from here. <laughs> and he was right. It's true. Right? And so in James chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he's saying, look, life is fleeting. You're going to pass away. So why pursue all these things? Because in the midst of those pursuits, right as you're driving to sign that contract for the big deal with Google or Facebook, you're going to have a heart attack and die. You're going to pass away. Right? The person himself who holds the wealth is fleeting. And here in James chapter 5, he says the actual wealth itself is fleeting. It is decaying. The obsession with material wealth and material things is warned against in that none of it has any worth in the future. None of it has any worth on the day of judgment. And so here he gets specific on those things. Riches, clothing, and gold and silver that a rich person back then would typically possess. You understand this same thing today for the most part. First, you have a general word for any sort of wealth or treasure, the word riches. We know that nothing lasts. Things are corrupted, destroyed, rotted, or just considered junk by future generations. You know that saying, it's true. One man's trash is another man's treasure, but the reverse is true as well. One man's treasure is another man's, usually his children's, trash. You've been there. Mom and dad are gone. What are we going to do with all this stuff in this house? Right? It's wealth to them. To you, it's just like we actually have to pay for junk kings to haul this all away. You don't want it. You feel bad getting rid of it, but you don't want it. It's just junk now. And he points out to his audience that the riches have already rotted. Look at the terminology he uses. They may still have a lot, but even in their lifetimes, they have witnessed the passing of things they've owned before that have rotted, that have passed away. You ever noticed in our day, that the more expensive something is, the more fragile it is, the more fleeting it is. I mean, they spend, there are people I would imagine that 
are paid a lot of money to make smartphones look sleek and pretty and shiny and colorful. But it's so expensive, what's the first thing you do when you buy it? You slap a, a, a case on it. You can't even see the phone anymore. In fact, those companies that sell you the phones will say, we recommend you buy a case before your phone arrives in the mail because you don't want to drop it or ding it or hurt it. The more expensive the car, the less we want people to touch it. We park it on the far side of the lot so no one will accidentally ding it when they open their door. We make riders finish their food before they enter. But you buy a used beater, no problem. Come on in. Have your ice cream. I don't care. There's already stain on it when I bought it. But a new car? No way, Jose. Keep your crumbs at home. And the point is these things pass and fade away. Again, it's not wrong to have these things. We need to enjoy them. We need to give glory and thanks to the Lord. But foodies, foodies, there's a lot of us here in the Bay Area. Do you realize that the thing you spend the most money on is literally flushed down the toilet. Don't think about that too much. Phones break, investments depreciate or completely disappear. How much more is this true of ancient times when with stuff, plastics had yet to be invented and metal was not manipulated and formed into products as they are today? Things pass away. James then moves on to something more specific, clothing or garments, Of all the things someone could own, this may seem strange, but if you remember, fine clothes, nice clothing, was a sign of wealth back then. We saw this played out in chapter 2, when a visitor to church is instantly recognized as wealthy because of his clothing. Even outside of the scriptures, in ancient texts from James's time, garments were frequently mentioned as a sign of wealth. And we know that outer garments were often embroidered or even decorated with jewels. Although not universal, clothing is still considered one of the first signs of wealth. It is one of the first things you do when you achieve wealth, to go and buy nice clothes. We envy walk-in closets filled with designer clothes, handbags, and shoes. No celebrity showing off their home on reality television can complete the tour without bringing the audience into their closet. And today, the stores that are for the wealthy elite are not necessarily things selling things that cost a lot of money, like electronics. Store, it's stores that sell clothing. Almost everyone walks and shops into the Apple Store. Not so with Saks Fifth Avenue. Clothing. Because rich or poor, you will spend hundreds on a smartphone, but a few hundred or a few thousand on jeans or a dress? Not for you and I. Regardless of how in vogue or expensive any piece of clothing is, it is prone to decay. Moth-eaten, as James says here, But we know there's other things. Mildew, stains, fading, snags, and tears. You go to the Smithsonian or various museums, and they have famous uh, pieces of clothing that different celebrities have worn or presidents have worn. And 
the mechanisms they used to preserve those garments cost way more than those garments cost when that individual bought them. Dehumidifiers, humidifiers, glass cases, alarm systems. Because, if not, they will fade away. For some, simply having been worn in public once or going out of style means that clothing is never to be worn again. And in Job 13.28, in the midst of his physical suffering, Job says, I am decaying like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. But then James moves on to arguably the most valuable of the fortunes. In the beginning of verse 3, he says, Your gold and your silver have rusted. This speaks of actual rusting, but also tarnishing and corrosion. If a metal is jewelry, if a metal is to look good, then tarnishing is, makes it worthless. It's not shiny, it's not bright, it looks cheap and poor. Rusting can refer to decay in general. Now, although 24 karat gold, which does not rust or tarnish, has been found from the ancient world, alloys, which do rust and tarnish, have been used as early as 1300 B.C., And so we know James's audience would have been familiar with this. But regardless, we should not miss James's point. In fact, the rusting or tarnishing of precious metals became a proverbial statement speaking of both temporality as well as uselessness. These days, we put most of our wealth in various investments, digitized these days, but even in the past three months, It's 2023. Just in the past three months, we have shown that even these are not reliable, not even banks. You say, well, I'm going to go old school. I'm going to take all my money out of the bank and put it under my mattress. Go ahead, because inflation is going to devalue that cash too. What about fire? What about flood? What about theft? Here's the point. Whether it's riches in general, clothing, or precious metals, bottom line, your wealth is fleeting. Listen to Proverbs 11, verse 28. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Now notice he doesn't compare the one who trusts in his riches with the poor. He talks about the righteous. So again, that's the point. Not how much you have or how little you have, but where you put your trust. And there's another place this concept is very prominent. It's in Matthew 16 and verse 19, where Jesus basically says the same thing, uses the same pictures. Matthew 6, 19. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Again, Jesus isn't saying, like, if you have a place where no one can steal and no rust can come and moths can't lay their eggs, then you're secure. We understand that's not what he's saying. He's saying, where is your focus? Is it on earth or is it in Jesus Christ? And what Jesus is warning about is the mindset of storing up wealth on earth in such a way that storing up wealth is the goal of life. It is your passion. It is your consuming objective. 
And what is the result of this mindset? Wealth in its many forms is hoarded. Even when that wealth has no value for the owner anymore. For the very wealthy, what happens to these moth-eaten clothes? They stay in the closet. They're not given to the poor or even donated so the less fortunate can buy them at a discount. Their closets are big enough. There's no need to clear space. What happens to the rusted metals and the rotted riches? Same thing. You hold on to them. I worked hard for this. I'm not giving it up. Maybe someday I can fix it. Maybe it'll be valuable someday to my wife, to my kids. You've heard this before. We fill up our houses with junk. When there's too much junk, we get bigger houses. And thankfully, you can rent storage spaces where, ironically, the decaying process speeds up. You say, well, what else can I do? Yes, I get it. I've seen what James is saying. Riches, clothes, precious things, ruined, destroyed. They need to be replaced, right? Absolutely. I agree, but not in the way you think. I mean, yes, you need to buy your kids new clothes when they wear out or are are outgrown. You need to do the same for your own. Although as adults, we outgrow our clothes horizontally, not vertically. We need to keep working to replenish our funds. When last month's check went to bills and groceries, we need to be good stewards. We need to be faithful and pay off our creditors. But aside from the basic need for replacing these things, should we have an earthly treasure-storing mindset, our whole perspective needs to be replaced. Let me read for you the rest of what Jesus says in Matthew 16. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, think about it, even from a practical standpoint. You see in the news all the time uh, some of these real crime dramas. Who's breaking in to steal and sometimes killing? The people who don't need to break in the children, the spouses, the relatives the people who live in their home. We don't even need to worry about that in heaven because we're all going to be glorified. There will be no sinful temptations. There will be no sin. God's not going to take it. God's going to give it. The key is this. What is the aim of your life? Is it heaven or is it earth? And as we've talked about in James, there is a blessing and grace as well as a utilitarian nature about the things of earth. But when it comes to the Christian and the things that we have that God has given us, which is everything, John Calvin puts it well. He says this, God has not appointed gold for rust nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. We get this. But sometimes we amass so much that they don't help us because we don't need them. We just want them and we store them. We see them not as aids but as goals. Then we have so much of it that it will decay because it's too much for one individual or even one family 
to use. We just want options. And what's more, when we see these things as the goals, when we see possessions as the goals, wealth as the goals, money as the goals, Jesus says we are then seeing them as God's. And I think we'd all agree that we would prefer a God that is not destined for irreversible destruction. Well, there's a third misfortune of worldly fortune, which is the worst one. It is actually the culmination of all that James is saying here. And the third point is impending discipline or impending doom. We've seen the inevitable despair, weep, and howl for the miseries are coming. Secondly, irreversible destruction, just the reality of earthly things. And now impending discipline or impending doom. Building off of the picture of gold and silver rusting, he says in the latter part of verse 3, And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Let me explain this. Their rust will be a witness against you. Here's the idea. Since this person has placed their confidence and sense of worth in gold and silver instead of God, the destruction of these things, rust, will be like a witness in a court of law testifying to the sinfulness of this wealthy individual. And this witness on the witness stand will not speak highly of their personality, of their character. It will not speak highly of godly pursuits of the man or the heavenward perspective of the woman. There will be no testimony of their generosity and sacrifice for the poor or for the church. There will only be condemnation from the lips of the rusting, rotten, moth-eaten possessions. Look at me. Look at me, Your Honor. He has held on to me. I am rusting. I am rotting. This is all he cared about. Look at us. We see this in documentaries sometimes. Whether it's the decadence of suitcase contents salvaged from the sunken Titanic or lavish staircases and chandeliers of old mansions that have long ago been deserted and left to the elements. And we see these things and we think, what a shame. What a waste. Those now corroded possessions serve as a witness for the prosecution against the wicked rich. A testimony to what they valued more than anything else in this life. But they also serve as witness of the consequences to these people before the Lord. Look at the verse. The rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. We know all over the Scriptures, fire is a picture of God's judgment. We see it in the eternal punishment of the unbeliever. We see it in the refining judgment of the Bema seat for the Christian. And then James closes with this. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. We know that we are in the last days. Although there is a culmination to these last days that is signaled by the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, we are in the time period, the history of man that is leading up to these things. This doesn't mean that it's going to be next week. It doesn't mean that it's going to be a few decades from now. We don't know. 
What we do know is that with the birth of Christ, these last days have begun. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. For this we know that it is the last hour. So when it comes to the rich man that James is addressing, what he has done is amass treasures in a place that will soon no longer exist. He's doing so as if the world would never end. In other words, the time to enjoy these things has passed. It is time to focus on God. And that's the key. Because you say, well, this was written 2,000 years ago. I'm sure that guy enjoyed these things for the rest of his life. But again, it is perspective. Over and over again in the Scriptures, the believers are encouraged to excel still more, encourage one another, love one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Strap in. Work harder. Love each other more because the end is near. We are in the end times. And I get it. So what is the Lord coming? Is it soon? Well, for the readers of this letter, we're 2,000 years later and we're still in those last days that have not come to culmination in the very last things, the last days. But again, the point is understanding the right perspective. And also going back to what we saw earlier in James chapter 1, when you compare it to eternity, even if you live to 127, no matter what stage you are in those 127 years, it is just a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. You are in your last days. And so whether we're talking about in the time plan of God and eschatology, the plan for the church, or even in your own life, we are told in both scenarios for the rich man, for the Christian pursuing wealth, be careful. Fix your perspective. It is time to focus on God. And at this point, all this wicked man will be storing up is the treasure of God's wrath. That's what James is saying at the end of the verse. So what do we do? I like stuff. You like stuff. We buy stuff. We see stuff go in the trash. Stuff no longer is going to be updated by its maker. And so we have to buy more stuff. What do we do? If you are a believer who is struggling with this, who loves the world and is seeking riches in a way that puts God in the back seat and even objectifies the poor and other believers, you say, well, I'm not in a place. I don't own a factory. I don't own a business. I'm not in a place to do that. Oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Because biblical fellowship tells us that we are to prioritize each other Financially, sure, but even with your time. Because if you're consumed with making money, checking your stocks all the time, where's the time you're going to have to encourage, to sacrifice, 
to buy something for someone else, whether out of their need or just to encourage them. You can't do it. You won't do it. You want your money. You want your time for that money. What do we do? Well, first you need to deal with a heart that loves the world. And although I've alluded to it frequently this morning, we've already seen a more powerful explanation of it back in chapter 4. That's not ultimately the point here. The love of the world. The point is here is about the rich person who oppresses the poor for the sake of getting more wealth or at least not giving up what he already has. But again, when we push people to the side for the sake of our personal gain, it may not be that kind of oppression of the poor where you're withholding their wages, but it's not loving, it's not kind, it's not treating one another the way God wants us to treat one another. What does repentance for this person look like? especially in light of the signs of the times that indicate that we are in the last days, you must first recognize the foolishness of living for this world when the next is knocking at the door. You must see the grace of God in your life as well as the reality that He is the judge. We must see these things, the reality that He is judge as well as the grace of God in your life. We must see those things for what they are. And what they are is the best motivation to share and not hoard your wealth. Again, wealthy or not, we can all learn from this warning. Because really, who are the wealthy? The ability to afford life in the Bay Area, no matter how much you think you're scraping to get by, means that we are considered wealthy, not by the developing world, but by the majority of the United States of America. Do you understand this? Outside of certain cities and regions, such as New York City, the majority of America considers us wealthy simply because we can afford rent that's $2,000, $3,000, $4,000 a month. Mortgages that are more than that. Houses that cost a million dollars and upwards that are on the market literally for an hour before they receive 20 offers. And unless you have at least 20% down payment, $200,000, which much, for much of America might as well be $2 because it's equally unattainable, we are wealthy. I know this doesn't resonate with people, but the Bible says the wealthy are people who own more than one change of clothing. And we get that because anything else is extra. It's luxury. It's wanting to not look dirty or whatever it is in our context. We are wealthy. Because here's this thing. We all want to see a passage like this and deflect and say, I'm not wealthy. And say, well, it's not for me. But even if you are a multimillionaire, you could say, well, there's the billionaire. By the way, one of America's billionaires believes that the first person to ever become a trillionaire is currently alive. So he can even deflect. We need to be careful we don't do that. Because although you may not be at this particular financial level this morning, maybe you're not even at the financial place that you want to be. 
We can still learn from the warnings about loving money, trusting in money, and as we'll see more next time, the temptation to be slightly dishonest to get more money. So let's add to all of this 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Turn there with me as we close. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Those who are rich, nope. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Those who want to get rich is prefacing that very famous verse that you know, the next verse, 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. One of which, going back to James, they ought to howl and wail in anticipation of. Three misfortunes of worldly fortune, inevitable despair, irreversible destruction, and impending discipline. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to you be the glory for our stuff, for our money that allows us to live, for the extra money that allows us to live in this place to be a witness and a testimony to a place that is so wealthy and probably because of it so incredibly dark. So may we not follow suit and see money as the end of all things, the goal of all things. May we sit down at those special restaurants and buy our phones and get in our cars with an attitude of gratefulness and thankfulness, understanding that we are stewards of what you have given us. Help us to have the right perspective, the right mentality so that we do not love money, so that we do not delve into a temptation to be grossly or even slightly dishonest, whether with one another, whether with our boss, whether with the storekeeper, whether with the IRS, to be dishonest about our finances to keep more money. For those of us who are so far from in any way being wealthy, we're scraping to get by. We're going paycheck to paycheck. We're borrowing. We're taking things on loan. We're paying the minimum balance. Father, praise God for these people that you have given them this wonderful opportunity to trust in you and not in their riches. For those of us who are comfortable, for those of us who are more than comfortable, for those of us who have more than others but still complain how little we have, may we have the right perspective and recognize that, yes, these things fade away, and so we'll use them for your glory. We'll use them to survive. We'll use them as tools and not as gods, not as the ultimate aim, whether daily and large, or just once in a while, Lord. Help us all to repent 
of the love of money, friendship with the world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.